Well, we're going to continue in our worship service by proclaiming and hearing the Word of God. Uh, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark, and as I've already alluded to multiple times in this service, uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with his disciples. It's a remarkable passage. In fact, it It's an overwhelming passage in many ways because we get a glimpse into the triune nature of God. We get a glimpse into the relationship between the Father and the Son. And we see this deep anguish of Jesus. But we also see his willing submission to the Father. It's a, it's a inexpressible and unexplainable Reality, And we're dipping our toes into the mystery of the divine as we look at this passage. And uh, what a glorious little picture window we get into the heart of our Savior. So with that, why don't we turn to the text. You can turn there in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. Or you can follow along uh, in your bulletins as well. Mark 14, 32 to 42. Hear God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, once again, I ask you that you would help me to proclaim faithfully the good news of Jesus Christ in our text. Lord, help us to understand the wonders of Jesus in this picture into his relationship with you. And help us to see how through him we have that relationship, that same relationship with you. Lord, what glorious news that is. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The heart of faith might be summed up with uh, these words. If you were to describe what is faith, they might be summed up with these words that are found here in our text. They're found in the Lord's Prayer that I prayed just a minute ago. And it is this, thy will be done. That's faith. It's a declaration of faith. It is that prayer that says, Lord, your will alone be done. 
Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it wasn't just something Jesus taught, was it? It's something he prayed himself. Remarkable thing. Christ, co-equal with the Father. Here he is praying, Thy will be done. It's the heart of faith. But the opposite is the heart of unbelief. My will be done, right? That, that's at the very heart or essence of unbelief. My will, my way be done. As we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane this morning, I want us to be letting that prayer, thy will be done, to permeate our minds and our hearts. And as we come to sort of wrestle with our own failure, our own, our own desire for our own will to be done, I want us in that moment of recognition to say, yeah, that's me. I'm like those disciples in the garden. I want us to come and see Jesus. That, that, this text shows us Jesus. It shows us the wonders of the Son of God, and I want us to see him foremost, even as we have to wrestle in our own hearts with our own unbelief. Because here was Jesus, the perfect man, who willingly submitted to the will of his heavenly Father, even in the depths of his anguish, an anguish that no one, no man, I think, can comprehend. And we'll get to that as we look at the text. Nevertheless, in that deep anguish, an anguish he said that was unto death, he said, thy will be done. And I want, I want us to find comfort in that. In Jesus' submission to the Father. And as we find our comfort in knowing that because he willingly submitted to the Father and went to the cross, that therefore we can have those same lips now on our, those same words now on our lips, that we can now cry because of his work, thy will be done. But see Jesus first. So let's look at this, this idea of the Lord's will being done. I want to look at it in just two parts. I want to look at the anguish of Christ and the ambivalence of the disciples. The anguish of Christ and the ambivalence of the disciples. It's, you could choose another word than ambivalence, but they seemed pretty ambivalent as they fell asleep. So we'll look at it in those two parts. First, the anguish of Christ. Just to remind ourselves where we're at in the story, they left the upper room. Jesus had told them that one was going to betray him. And then he told them all that they were all going to abandon him, that they were going to flee, that they were going to run away. And of course, Peter refused to believe that. And he said to Peter, well, you're going to deny me. In fact, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. All the disciples protested and said, no, there's no way, Lord. We're not going to, we're not going to abandon you. We're not going to leave you. And so they were on this walk after the euphoria of the upper room, and now they were kind of walking home in the dark of night, and they were coming to the, what I would say, the sort of headed up towards the Mount of Olives. They were headed up, and there's a garden in there uh, called the Garden of Gethsemane. Literally, the Garden of the Wine Press, or not the Wine Press, the Olive Press. Um, it was where 
presumably they would take the olives, or at least there was one such press there at some point, and that was how it got its name. And that's where they were. They were in this garden. It was late. They had a long day. And Jesus says, let's stop. Let's pray. And he takes Peter, James, and John, his closest companions. And it's kind of an interesting thing. He takes Peter, James, and John, right? He's done this at various points. We saw him do this in the Mount of Transfiguration. He took them up to the mountain, and I want to look at that in just a minute. But I want us to think about these particular men with regard to the situation at hand. Jesus was going to pray because he was about to be betrayed, and these disciples were about to abandon him. And so he takes those close companions, Peter, who avowed that he would never leave Jesus' side, that he would willingly go and die at Jesus' side. He took Peter, but he took James and John as well. You'll remember from chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus was talking at that point about his going to the cross, his suffering and his dying. And the disciples James and John said, Lord, can we ask you something? I don't know if you remember this. So can we ask you something? And, and he, he said, if, you know, they went ahead and asked him, can we take the cup with you? Can we drink the same cup that you drink? Can we go along with you? Just like Peter said, I want to, I'm going to die with you. Now his disciples had previously, James and John had said, we're going to take the cup with you. And what was Jesus' response? You don't know what you're asking. You can't drink this cup. This cup isn't for you. So he takes these three disciples who had a misconception, who didn't understand what was about to happen. They had some vague sense, I think, that Jesus was going to suffer and die after all. He had said it multiple times. But they didn't understand what that entailed. And they had all three of them thought that they would be able to come alongside Jesus in this. That they would stand firm. There was no way that they were going to let Jesus do it on his own. He takes those three companions with him to pray. And he says to them, watch. Stand watch. They were proud disciples. They were the inner circle. They thought well of themselves. They were the ones who went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. That was really interesting if you compare the Mount of Transfiguration to this time in Gethsemane, what was the Mount of Transfiguration like? Well, the Mount of Transfiguration, it was glorious, right? They went up onto the mountaintop. There, Jesus was transfigured, and you had Moses and Elijah on side to side on either side of Jesus, and you hear the voice of the Father, and Peter's overwhelmed with it, and he's like, well, I want to stay and watch. I'm going to set up my tent. I'm gonna, I want to live here in this moment. This is it. Glory has come. Now compare that to this moment. He takes those three aside. He says, come with me. He says, come with me to pray. And what, do, what does Jesus do? He says to them these words. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He was greatly distressed and troubled. Can you imagine? That's the the difference between these two moments. Before they had seen Jesus transfigured, 
blazing, white, glorious, spotless. It was a picture of, of, of what was to come. The sort of the pulling back of the, the veil, so to speak, and seeing the wonder of the Son of God. And now, here he is, a man whose anguish is so deep, his distress and agony so great that the Gospel of John, or the Gospel of Luke says that he literally sweat tears or sweat blood. Or his sweat was like blood. It's, it's a little unclear. But either way, he was under such anguish. Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking at this moment? What do we do with this? <laughs> Jesus, what's wrong? It's a curious thing. Jesus is anguish. Jesus' sorrow. After all, he had set his face to Jerusalem with resolve to suffer and die. But now he's come face to face with the reality of it, with the experience of it. What made his anguish so difficult, so deep? Now, it's an interesting thing because people die for all sorts of causes, right? It's not... You know, it's somewhat remarkable, but it's not unheard of that somebody would die for a cause, good or bad. I mean, people die for all sorts of causes. People willingly put themselves in harm's way. People will willingly be arrested and face even execution for what they believe are good or just causes. We can just read the martyr stories. So... That can't be the reason alone for Jesus' anguish, that he is dying for some just cause. We'll come back to that, but I think it's an important aspect that he was dying for a good cause, I would say a great cause, but I don't think that was the anguish per se. Now, physical death can be a horrific thing, too. And any human being who faces death has to wrestle with his or her own mortality as they come to that, 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 that bridge over the river, right? That, that moment where you recognize that life is passing. And that is a painful thing. And if it's a Roman cross, it's all the worse, right? It's a, it's a horrific form of death. And yet people throughout history have died all sorts of deaths. Many have faced pain of ignominious death with grace. These two things ought not to be dismissed. They're not simple, either dying for a cause or just the physical act of dying. Those things are horrific, but they don't quite get at the depth of Jesus' anguish, do they? They don't, it doesn't make sense of here is the Son of God who is, who is falling on his face before his heavenly Father, sweating blood. Like Luke says, like great drops of blood falling down from the ground. I think to understand the anguish and distress of Jesus, an anguish and distress that causes him to feel as if he is dying, we need to look more closely at his praying. 
The anguish and distress was on account of his relationship to his father, his Abba, Father. It's interesting here in the Gospel of Mark at this moment, we have the only time where Jesus refers to the Heavenly Father as Abba. It was an intimate, familial term. And it was radical for him to pray this to God uh, in, in the Jewish context. Jewish people would not have approached God with, with that familiarity, if you will, or that, that intimacy. They would have viewed, you know, even saying the name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, they would have seen that as something you didn't do. They, they, they put sort of guards against any potentiality of taking the Lord's name in vain. So for someone to cry out, Abba, Father, would have been a radical thing. And here in the Gospel of Mark is the only place we have this. But here Jesus says, Abba, to the very God of heaven, there is an intimacy that is unveiled to us, a closeness and a love between the Father and the Son that is revealed in these words when Jesus says, Abba, Father. And it's precisely because of this intimacy and love, this union and communion of the divine Godhead that we begin to understand the anguish that felt like death for Jesus. Here was the Son of the Father, the one whom the Father had said at his baptism, this is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. You see, they had forever, for all eternity, dwelt in perfect love and perfect unity. The Son, obedient always to the will of the Father. The Father and the Son, always purposing and executing together, along with the Holy Spirit, the whole of creation and redemption. They were perfectly one. But now Jesus... This man of sorrows comes to his heavenly father, yes, facing death and rejection at the hands of his own people and those whom he came to save. But more than that, he was facing the very wrath and curse of his father. And why? Because of our sin. We see here in the prayer the language of a cup. Jesus says, remove the cup from me. Now, the language of cup uh, is, a, is language that's used throughout Scripture to talk about something. Two things, usually. One is it's a cup of, of, uh, of sort of rejoicing, a cup of overflowing with goodness. Um, we see this in the, the Psalms, right? Psalm 23, particularly, where it says, my cup overflows, right? There's this, this sense in, of, of rejoicing and provision and, and life that comes in the picture of the cup. When we take the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood, it's a cup of provision and blessing and joy. But there's another image of cup in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, and it is not a cup of joy, but a cup of wrath. Isaiah 50, 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, 
who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jesus has already expressed his readiness to drink this cup in chapter 10. I already mentioned James and John thought that they could share that cup. So Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to take that wrath upon yourself for sin? And not just your own sin, but the sin of all God's people. So here we are in Gethsemane. Jesus prostrates himself before the Lord. He's in anguish. Here's his Abba Father. Father who was holy, holy, holy. There was none like him in all the earth. Here was his Father, just and righteous, punishing iniquity and sin. Here was his Father, glorious and majestic in all his ways and in all his decrees. And the Son faced him. He faced that wrath from him, not because of any unrighteousness in him. Not because he deserved it, but because he and the Father and the Spirit together committed to do it for you and for me. See, Jesus faced separation, dereliction. He faced death for sin that was of such a magnitude that only the beloved Son of the Father could bear it, could drink it. The only one. All that perfect intimacy and love between the Father and Son would be for a time rent. This is what the Son faced. The wrath of Almighty God for sin. One commentator put it this way, picking up that language of the cup of staggering. Did you catch that? So the cup of wrath in Isaiah was described as a cup of staggering. I want you to hear these words of this, of this one theologian. He says, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, right? He came to be with the Father, to, to have intimacy with the Father, to pray to the Father. He came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him. And he staggered. He staggered. He fell on his face. He was in anguish. He was the Son of Man, fully man, expressing that deep anguish of being alienated from his Abba Father. He who lived wholly for his Father in every way. He did all that the Father had asked of him. Now faced the awful judgment. For sin. I think this ought to cause us to stop dead in our tracks and consider the lengths to which Christ had to suffer for you and me. As we look at his agony here, it ought to cause us to ponder what would cause such a thing? What could possibly cause such anguish for the God of heaven and earth, for Christ? His only begotten Son. We get a small window into the affliction caused by our sin. We might wonder 
Is it not sinful for Christ to ask for the cup to pass by him? Of course, the answer to that is no, right? (laughs) Very clear, Christ cannot sin. But, but it might cause us to wonder, was this not the very purpose for his coming? Why, why would he want it to pass by, right? What, what was his reason for asking for this cup to pass him by? First, it was certainly his purpose for coming. But just because it was his purpose did not make that prospect less horrific and less painful. Jesus is a man here expressing his deep anguish to his Abba. Second, you'll note that Jesus said to his father, all things are possible for you. The son understands fully his role and the necessity of it. He understands the judgment that is required for sin. He understands why he must suffer and die. That's not at at, at question. But he also understands fully the character of his heavenly Father in heaven. Yes, he's a holy and just God who is who is going to pour out his wrath for the iniquity of sin. But this God, his heavenly Father, his Abba, was also a Father full of grace. He knew this of his heavenly Father. If there was a way for this hour, this cup to pass by him, if his father in heaven could make a way for salvation that didn't require this, the Lord Jesus wanted it. He knew it wasn't possible, but he longed for that because he knew that God was a God of mercy and grace. And if any could find a path forward in this, of course, it's the God of heaven who could do all things. I think in this prayer, he is recognizing the character and quality and mercy and grace of God. Yet thirdly, and this is really important to this question, this is a qualified prayer, isn't it? It's a prayer of longing, but it's also a prayer of understanding and submission. It's not presumptuous. It's not sinful. It's simply an expression of his intimate love for the Father. You see, he loved his father so much that the idea of being separated from him was so overwhelming, right? Here they had perfect love, perfect unity. You know, I have a hard time imagining what it would be like to be separated from my family for length of time. I I have all sorts of electronic communication. I can share love with them across boundaries. But if for whatever reason all was cut off, that would be a hard thing to endure. But we don't even have perfect love, perfect unity. Here in this prayer, Jesus is expressing his affection for his Father. Jesus qualifies the prayer with these words, Yet not I will, but what you will. It is the perfect obedience of the Son to the Father and the perfect expression of his love for him. Friends, it's a humbling thing for us to have access into this most intimate and loving prayer And it ought to cause us to consider the depths of love to which Christ, to which the whole triune God of heaven went to save us. It ought to stop us in our tracks and cause us to consider how lightly we take our sin, how easily we rebel against God. Thinking of our sin as but a trifling thing, friends, it caused the rending of heaven itself. 
There was no way possible apart from this terrible dereliction to bring about the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls, except that Christ take the cup of wrath for us. That ought to humble us. To see the Son willingly drink that cup. Not even his desire to remain in perfect fellowship with his Father, we keep him from that cup. Not his will be done, but the Father's. And his will was so that he might call you his beloved. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, I'll be rejected and, and, and I will endure the wrath of God for your sake that you might have this intimacy and love that I enjoy. That you might know the love of God and be able to call out to him as your Abba. Tragically, we're a little dull like the disciples in this text, aren't we? I wanted to spend just a little bit of time, and this will be my last point, thinking about our response to Jesus as we look at his disciples. They were ambivalent. They were an ambivalent group. They were told to remain, to watch, and to pray. And I wonder what the disciples were thinking They went from the highest of highs in that upper room as they enjoyed Passover meal with Jesus to the lowest of lows. Well, they didn't hit the lowest of lows yet. They'll hit the lowest of lows in just a few short hours from this moment. But anyway, they they were in this kind of dark moment where Jesus is on his face crying out in anguish, feeling like he was dying, and they were observing all of this. You can't help but think that the disciples were a little bit distressed themselves at seeing their Savior on the ground, seeing all that emotion coming over Jesus. You can imagine how they might have felt. I think we can feel uncomfortable too when when people show a wide range of emotion. If they show deep, deep joys, it can make us a little uncomfortable. But if they show deep, deep grief and sorrow, you, you can feel a little uncomfortable, Right? Grief, particularly, is hard for us to deal with. Sometimes we'll even say something to the effect of, we don't understand the grief. We don't get why they feel that way, or it confuses us, and we feel awkward about it. I think there's a couple reasons. I think we want to fix grief. We want to make it go away when somebody is deeply grieved, when they are bereft, when they, when they are bawling and sobbing. We just want to fix it. We want it to all go away. We want to make everything nice. We want to clean it up. We don't want to deal with it. If you've been to a funeral, you know what I'm talking about. If you have had loved ones die and you've been in grief, you know what I'm talking about. People will often offer up platitudes to diminish the pain, right? To kind of gloss over it, to say, oh, don't feel so bad. Don't feel so bad. How does that, how does that go over when you're grieving? It's, a, it's not a comfort, is it? I wonder if it was like this for the disciples. They just wanted this part of the night to end, right? I just want to go to sleep. I just want to be done with this part of the night. This is, this is a part of the night I don't want to deal with. They couldn't grasp the anguish of Jesus in this moment. But I want to suggest something else. I don't know that it is so much that we don't understand people in their grief. 
Maybe that's a part of it. We don't always understand what grief somebody feels. But I think the greater thing is that we don't want to enter their grief. We don't want to carry their grief. We don't want to feel their grief. It's too much to bear. So the disciples, instead of praying and weeping and crying out to God with Jesus, they closed their eyes and they shut out the grief and the pain. They just can't bear it. What do they do? Well, their will, their desire is to sleep. (laughs) Jesus' will was that they would sit and watch and pray. And their will was, I'm going to sleep. This is too much. But here's the the good news, is Jesus knew they couldn't bear the grief. In fact, that's why he told them to watch and pray. He knew that what was about to come was too much for them, was overwhelming for them. He knew that they wouldn't be able to handle it. They thought too lightly or too little of what was impending. They didn't come to grips with the things Jesus had been telling them in terms of his own suffering. There was an ambivalence that they exhibited towards his warnings to watch and to pray. Why? Because they still didn't fully grasp the magnitude of sin and the magnitude of the suffering with which Jesus would have to endure, which Jesus would have to endure. And they were still thinking their will to endure alongside of Jesus. Whatever was to come was sufficient. They, they thought they could manage, that they would be able to, str- to have the strength to come alongside Jesus in that moment of suffering in their own will. But Jesus understood their weakness. So he called to them. He said to them, be on guard, be aware of the power of hell at work in this moment. The power that brought about the betrayal that would soon bring about your own abandonment of me, your own denial of me, that, that power that's at work, be on guard, watch, pray. Of course, despite him knowing their weakness, there is a sense that of the sadness that Jesus has, the disappointment that we see on his part when he says to Simon Peter, he says, Simon, are you asleep? It's interesting that he uses the name Simon, right? He usually calls him Peter, the rock. Peter, of course, we think was behind the gospel of Mark, that he was the one who told Mark, and Mark wrote these things down. And you wonder if, if in hearing Jesus' word saying, calling him Simon, it wasn't a reminder of his, well, let's just say, unlike rockness. I don't know if that's a term, or you might put it, his weakness. Jesus is saying, Simon, where is the rock? Where's the one who is going to stand by me to the end, who is going to die with me? You can't even pray for one hour? You're not like a rock, you're like sand. He understood their weaknesses. So he says to them again, watch and pray that you might not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here he reminds them of the gifts that are theirs, the tools necessary to fight temptation, namely the spirit and prayer. You see, I think it's when we forget that we are weak 
It's when we forget that we are in Adam, that we are fallen. It's when we start to think that we have it all together, that we can muster the strength to fight off sin and live to righteousness, that we fall into temptation and sin. But Jesus understands our weakness. He understands our frailty. He knows that we easily succumb. And so he reminds us. He taught us to pray. And this, this here is him, again, teaching his disciples to pray. He says, you have one who is able to strengthen you. Go to the Lord. The Spirit is willing. He, he can help. He can strengthen you. He can come alongside you. And here he reminds us that we can cry out in prayer to our Heavenly Father as well. It's a really remarkable thing. But Jesus, in his own life as a man, prayed. He lived a life of dependence. Here's the Son of God, the the one who spoke, you know, the one who was there at creation, who was the Word, who made all things, who was preeminent, and yet he was dependent. If the Lord is dependent on his heavenly Father, how much more ought we to be dependent in prayer to our Heavenly Father, going to Him, crying out to Him for strength and encouragement and power to overcome temptation and sin. Well, Jesus goes away again, but for a third time, He comes back to find His disciples asleep. Their willful negligence has now ripened into completeness. Remember, three, right? Three times, Peter would deny him three times. They are falling asleep. Three times. It's completed. And so Jesus acknowledges this. In his sorrow, Jesus says these final words, it is enough. It's enough. Another way to put this, enough is enough. Whenever my parents would say enough is enough, you know, that was like, all right, that was the end. Stop whatever wrong thing you're doing. You know, as parents, oftentimes we give a leash. We're like, we'll tell our kids, stop doing that. And they just keep running around and they say, say, stop. And then they keep running around doing whatever they're told not to do. And when you say enough is enough, at least as a kid, I knew that that was, I had stepped over the, (laughs) stepped over the Rubicon, went too far, right? Enough is enough. The time is at hand. Jesus, though he was being betrayed, denied, abandoned, arrested, beaten, and crucified, though the whole weight of God's wrath was being poured out, about to be poured out on him, though he would now feel that dereliction on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet, Through it all, Christ is saying, Thy will be done. His disciples had confirmed themselves in their unwillingness to bend to the Lord. They had confirmed themselves in their willingness to go and deny Christ and to abandon Him at the cross. And yet He says, Thy will be done. And it was the will of God that Christ, 
should suffer and die for us who cry, my will, my will be done. And through that great submission of the Son to the Father, this is the most glorious thing. (laughs) We abandon Christ. We deny Christ. We fall into temptation. We cry out, my will be done. We do the things we want to do. And yet the Lord of glory continues to do the will of his Father so that we might have access to that same throne of grace, that we might call the God of heaven and earth, the Holy One, Abba. What wonderful mystery is this that makes us wonder, why does the Lord love us so? And there is no answer other than He loves us so, so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for us. And that that son willingly drank the cup of his wrath that we might be forgiven and that we might have access to that throne of grace. What wonderful mystery this is that should cause us to say, thy will be done. I want to see more of that will. I want to see more of that wonder. I want to see more of that grace come out. I want to see thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to see your salvation to the ends of the earth. In these words, we're not only submitting, but we are enjoying the love of God and the intimacy of God for sinners like you and me. What glorious hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.